welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Joel, for being a part of this conversation. Welcome well. to the podcast. Thanks. Um, Jeff, my brother, told me about you. You guys are in the same F3 group, which is like mm-hmm. a fitness group, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, we we do the workouts in the early mornings, and then um, he's joined our uh, Shield Lock, which is this uh, you know a smaller group of guys who meet more regularly and kind of try to sharpen one another and support each other and talk about what's going on. So I've been getting to know him through that as well. And the um, the three Fs are see faith, fitness. What else? Fellowship. Fellowship. And he mm-hmm. told me that you said the fourth F is philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> At least in uh, St. Charles, <laughs> according to me. So you're into philosophy. Mm-hmm. And like right now you're studying for your PhD. Yes. And then what other involvement have you had? Have you taught philosophy or... Is that yeah. Right? Okay. I, um, I taught philosophy uh, between master's degree I did and then trying to apply to PhDs. There were two years where I did, um, I was an adjunct professor and taught a, taught a few classes, a couple schools in Chicago. And uh, yeah, got, so, got a taste of what it was like. So um, how would you define just philosophy? Like, what is it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think... You can start with just like uh, Chesterton said, it's thought, thought through. So everybody thinks, but uh, philosophers uh, take some extra time to do it. Or um, even if people don't spend any time thinking, they have, they have a perspective that just sort of naturally comes out in how they live. And um, you can stop and consider each of those things. And uh, so, so you could say philosophy is sort of stepping back from how you normally do things or how you just normally naturally think and asking the further questions about it. And, you know, you can say it's like the big questions of uh, nature and the world and God and the soul and all of that as well. Um, but what, what is philosophy? I mean, that's, that's a question that uh, I spend some time thinking about as I do philosophy a lot. <laughs> And it's something I've been asked by, most recently, an, an engineer saying, well, I have a targetable goal and I can follow the rules of physics and I can get there. What do you philosophers do? <laughs> and, uh, well, we don't have an agreed-upon goal. There's philosophers of all different perspectives and we don't agree on the methods. And uh, it's, it's, it, it doesn't work like engineering. <laughs> you know, it's... You, you start thinking and then then you figure out what you think and how to think and there, there's no shortcut to it. Right. And it's a, thinking along a certain subject matter like you mentioned the big questions. Mm-hmm. Like a person it's not like just a practical how to get something done type of thinking um, or even right. examining the world type of thinking but more of examining um, 
or looking into like what's life all about those types of big things what you know what's real how how do we live what's meaning mm-hmm. and so forth like that huh? yeah i mean i i think you can um you can philosophize about almost anything um but you're usually moving a step away from just you know how do i get this done to why am i doing it what is it to do something right <laughs> um you know and and that's why some of the examples in philosophy can be super mundane like you know it's very practical to have to staple a few pieces of paper together but then a philosopher will ask well what if i'm stapling 100 pieces of paper together and i i don't know if it's going to go through and then i just try and uh there was sort of a can you credit me with stapling it all the way through and d- did i really perform that action or uh sort of just luck that it made it all the way through so that's a f- philosophical question uh, absolutely <laughs> it's it's sort of uh if if you do we just do can we in in the way we act do we do things that go kind of all the way out to the world like um it sounds ridiculous but can i pick up this water bottle or, as some philosophers have proposed, is all I can do move my arm. But if it's in the right place, the water bottle will rise, and that's just an effect. Or even more restrictive is all I can do will something deep in my mind. I, I, I want my hand to move. And, and then you're even a step further back from being able to act in the world. That sounds strange. <laughs> <laughs> It reminds it me. Of, it reminds me a little bit of like the debate or on free will. Do we have free will mm-hmm. or not? Which I guess is a philosophical question too. Huh? Absolutely, and I, I think um, the strangeness is part of the game, but it's also um, potentially a sign that something's gone wrong because like, it's getting like too strange, impractical, off the rails a little bit. Yeah, it's sort of. Do philosophers even have a right to legislate whether it's possible for people to pick up water bottles? It seems like everybody knows that people can pick up water bottles. <laughs> yeah. But a great many philosophers, both those who maybe think we have a soul and so we are just the soul and then our body is sort of outside of us, they might think, well, all we can do is move our soul. But also more... Um, naturalistic philosophers, those who think the natural world is all there is, might think um, how to put this, that um, it would be sort of supernatural if um, I, a body enclosed in a certain surface area, were capable of making the world move. All I can do is sort of cause and then the rest is up to nature. Hmm. So, so some of the more esoteric questions, I think, are they're tied back to um, the deeper perspectives people take, and um, and and some of the kind of ridiculous sounding examples, I think, probably can be avoided, like by um, sort of a a question: How does a philosopher view common sense? Like, do we get to revise the whole thing? Um, 
the 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 ordinary picture human people uh, hu- human beings have of the world as populated by, as someone said, uh, middle-sized ordinary dry goods like tables and chairs and uh, water bottles and so on. Some philosophers will say we get to revise that, and actually everything's just made of atoms. You you see a table, but there's no table there. It's just a bunch of atoms. Or another philosopher might say, you see a table, but it's really just God is thinking a table. But there's no table. It seems like it gets really speculative. Like, and that to me, who who am not is very familiar with philosophy, mm-hmm. it seems like, well, you're just pondering maybe this, maybe that, but like, it's kind of beyond. You know, we just know how to act in the world. It's not like we can really grasp the world. We're just a part of it, and we can kind of know what it means to be human. But it almost seems like those uh, that train of thought just gets into like places we can't go, perhaps, or something. Yeah, um, this is where I think there's there's at least two sides to philosophy. Like there's there's the theoretical, which is some of what I'm giving you examples, and they can be kind of goofy and crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think there's a more practical side of philosophy, and um, the ancient philosophers, large, beginning with Socrates, largely focused on on the more practical. With, with a bit of a mix, and and um, you know, part part of what I'd say, what part of what I'm hoping to do is sort of um, see how those those two are related, because there's the the sort of esoteric wonderings of a philosopher in an armchair that just sound silly, and yet sometimes they're tied to things as grand as whether God exists or not. Hmm. Um, the, the People will, will talk about when you're, say, writing a philosophy paper, I would be encouraged by a professor, like, you need to motivate this paper. You need to, you start talking about something and I don't care about it. You need to explain why, why it matters, why I should care. And often those motivations are very deep-seated, but they're, you know, several logical steps away from <laughs> what that person's talking about. So they're related. They're related. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that philosophy can, can be about the, the practical matters as well. And um, if not primarily, I, I think uh, um, there's an idea that some of these theoretical questions are, are is something people need to be able to get over, including philosophers, <laughs> or or the idea that philosophers talk about them because they're subject to a sort of uh, disease of the mind. They just wonder about everything, <laughs> including things that maybe don't need any wondering. Maybe they're just obvious. Mm-hmm. Yes, people can pick up water bottles, <laughs> etc. But. Um, I, I'm I'm attracted to, to that idea that that uh, um, for 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 some of us anyway, the blatantly obvious opens up many questions and leads to many confusions. And <laughs> seeing through those is sort of a activity in its own right. So, as far as what attracts you to philosophy. Um, is it just kind of like 
your personality, just the, the wondering about these things that other people might not even wonder about, they just take them for granted and stuff? Or is there more, what attracts you to philosophy? I'd like to think there's more. Um, I mean, a lot of this started out um, with questions of uh, uh, Christian theology and apologetics. And uh, um, obviously people do philosophy from different angles. And um, some people think philosophy sort of excludes God and, and Christianity. To the contrary, half of the history of philosophy is of Christian philosophers. But for me, a lot of the questions just came from being a Christian, but say going to public school and being in a a secular environment and um, feeling a sort of conflict between what I believed and how I wanted to live and how people around me lived and believed and there were a lot of questions that just started there of um, what, what are the grounds for me believing what I do and how do you live a Christian life and, and think the, the beliefs of Christianity uh, in light of the modern world as it were yeah, um, you know, concerning, you mentioned like Christian philosophers. So I, I hear sometimes just the big splash that Christianity made on the world and things that we just take for granted because we have Christian influence. Hmm. Um, but I, so I, I was kind of wanting to look into that. So I, I went back, and I'm not real familiar with philosophers, but I went back to read a little bit of Hellenistic philosophers, like I read Cicero a little bit. Um, he, his um, paper on duties and so forth, but and then there's mm-hmm. second century Archilius, or um, the guy who wrote the journal. I forgot his name. Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and you mentioned Socrates, but some of these guys they seem like pretty upstanding in ethics and so forth. So I'm just, do you? What difference do you see that, like, Christian philosophy, how is it different than, like, non-Christian philosophy that's still seeking to live the good life and do the right thing and so forth? Absolutely. Um, So, I think sometimes Christians can try to argue that... um, without God, absolutely everything is meaningless. Or without Christian revelation, everything is meaningless. And there's no way to, um, you know, be a a moral person or an ethical person um, without God. People often make the caveats, you know, I I know my neighbor and he's a good atheist and and, and so on and so forth. As I see it, um, especially Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, they were uh, coming up with a view of the world as meaningful. This was like the point. Hmm. And before Socrates, people talk about the pre-Socratic philosophers. 
all of whom sound a lot more like natural scientists. They were speculating about how many elements the world was made of, um, and they had different theories. Um, whereas Socrates, um, he, he even said in his defense as he was about to be killed, I don't study nature. I study the, the human world, the moral world. And Socrates' ultimate question was, um, essentially, how should human beings live their life and what is the highest good? Mm-hmm. And um, his view was ultimately that it went beyond the material world and that though he didn't have divine revelation to say it, that those who lived in, in accord with the divine power in the world would, would be rewarded in a next life. Hmm. Um, secular philosophers these days try to hide those parts of Plato <laughs> or just uh, don't assign them. Mm-hmm. But that, that was part of Socrates' view. I mean, Aristotle's view was that the world was charged with purpose. And it was not a meaningless um, atoms bumping into each other and so on. Um, And so, in line with what ancient Christians thought, um, just as the Hebrew scriptures were preparation for the, the Jews to receive the gospel, they thought Greek philosophy was a preparation for the Greeks to receive the gospel. And I see that confirmed in the New Testament as Paul interacts uh, you know, in Athens with members of different philosophical groups and he's conversant with the way they talk and think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as a result, I think Christian philosophy shouldn't be seen as um, sort of starting a new game, mm-hmm. like it's totally different from other philosophy, but that it's it's continuous with that. There, um, and many of the questions philosophy asks Christianity answers. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. So this is like really random, but, um, you know, when it comes to, with Socrates, um, how do you feel about Socrates as far as the state of his soul and so Mm. forth when he's not, not only is he not a part of the Christian tradition, he's not even a part of the Jewish tradition. um, Absolutely. And yet it seems, you know, that he had a sense of the divine and he's trying to conform himself to it and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there, there's a couple of kind of established paths you can go. I mean, C.S. Lewis took the view that there were um, people from other, other faiths, faiths mm-hmm. even, and, um, outside Christianity who were searching for that and who, in whom God was working it wasn't like they were doing it all by their own power or anything but um, like at the end of the last battle of the Chronicles of Narnia there's the almost Muslim character that's mm-hmm. oh he thought he worshipped this God he actually worshipped Aslan right so I can kind of see that the, the other view would just be very protective of you know people are saved only through Christ so with, without knowledge of Christ um, you know, how could we affirm that a pagan was saved? I mean, the the early Christians, early Christian theologians who were very conversant with Greek philosophy, many of them took more the C.S. Lewis view um, that, like Justin Martyr, was 
church father who studied philosophy, um, Plato's works, and then became a Christian. And he couldn't help but think God must have been at work in these Greek philosophers. Mm -hmm. And through my time of of studying them and reading them, I I can't escape that that sense. There, uh, you know, Socrates never wrote a thing. Plato wrote down his dialogues and the end of many of the dialogues there's this sort of you know you've been analyzing something sometimes as silly as my water bottle example like you've been nitpicking words but but at the end you come to sort of a this moral and almost um, religious conclusion sometimes even um, the philosophy will stop and a, a myth will begin and there's this sort of push towards there's something transcendent and there's something that I can't answer as because Socrates' main belief was, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. He wasn't, I have it all together. He's like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Unlike everybody else who doesn't know but thinks they know, I know that I don't. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that's partly a recognition of a lack of divine revelation. But that that recognition is is important. Mm-hmm. I mean, if 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 anybody was saved outside of Judaism prior to Christianity, I would think it would be people who are asking and seeking the sort of things that Socrates, maybe Plato, maybe Aristotle, mm-hmm. <laughs> were thinking. But. You know, right. it's not been revealed to me, so I actually don't know either. <laughs> right. And according to, like, Romans 4, um, you know, it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. And um, it doesn't give... I mean, I don't know if it really... You know, it's kind of confusing. Well, what does the content of that faith have to be? Mm-hmm. Faith itself um, and God seems to be more of like a stance of one one before God of their heart, like humility and trust and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think that's the, I mean, I think this broadens out to how we view other people Mm -hmm. more more generally, like, um, I know across denominations, like, Mm -hmm. do we say whether someone is faith is, is based on how how much doctrinal agreement is necessary. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, if, if people are saved by faith, it's ultimately by um, something they can make a lot of mistakes about. Mm-hmm. Be saved by Christ without being able to, to spell out the doctrine right. of, the, of the Trinity, for example. Right. Or knowing exactly how, how things worked. And right. um, I don't think that precludes also uh, trying to dig into those things, as theologians and philosophers do. But um, in what sense can we know God... Like, um, I think, um, like knowing is, um, we can't, we probably can't know God in like a scientific sense as far as like examining him in a test tube or something like that or running experiments. But is there a sense in which we can know God and, and legitimately say we, you know, we know him, um, and from a philosopher's, uh, perspective, you know, what is knowing and um, can we say we know God? And if so, like, what, what does it mean if we say we know God? Yeah, I mean, I, 
I believe that I know God. <laughs> I take it that you know God. So I, um, I think the answer has to be yes. Um, I think there are, you know, for example, First Corinthians 13, like we, we see in a, a glass darkly, then we shall see face to face. Um, there's a sense that, you know, then we will know him and we shall be fully known. I think first John or something. So there's, there's an already and not yet we've, we've come to know God. Someone who's saved as a Christian, we believe Jesus is within us. And so (laughs) we, we, we do know God. We're very close to him, but, um, you know, a philosopher is often thinking about, you know, can we have the sort of certainty that God exists and about every detail of the Christian faith? And um, I think there it's it's helpful to recognize that there are certain limitations on our knowledge, and that's the point. Um, the we we don't. You know, God is invisible, so I don't know exactly what it means to see God. But clearly the Bible emphasizes the way in which the way we know of God is not quite like seeing. We're not, mm-hmm. we're not there yet. It's, it's belief. It's faith. Um, or First Corinthians, uh, no, Romans 1 talks about that we know God through what he's made. Um, we know his attributes like um, attributes that he's mm-hmm. not like some kind of idol we can form but rather something beyond that i think if i if i understand romans one i think that maybe what yeah and and that um you know many of like thomas aquinas and other christian philosophers have tried to ar- spell out arguments that kind of put this sense into words of like um you know the the great details of the biological world around us and how a tree, the leaves take in light and photosynthesis and all the details of the human body and, and so on. Um, I think that's Aquinas' fifth way, just the how everything in, in nature is sort of headed towards a goal. Like, how could that be without God, as it were, directing it to, it, to its goal? And um, there, there are limits. These aren't arguments you can sort of knock down, convince every stranger <laughs> that God exists, but I think they're um, important reflection on the world God has made. and um, So even there, like the idea of knowing God through what he's made, well, there would be a further way of knowing God, just a more direct way of just knowing him. And I think that that's what God ultimately promises us. Um, is, is seeing him face to face, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's something, um, I guess, like I was kind of pondering this this morning. So like eternal life is brought up quite a bit in, by, in the Gospel of John especially, but by the other New Testament writers. And it sometimes its emphasis just kind of has seemed a little odd to me like sure that's great eternal life but it just seems like I don't know um, almost like um, kind of like a uh, just a a prize or something a little 
not really the center of like what we're really after or something. But um, I was just thinking like maybe eternal life is perhaps more of a, a state of being than rather than just merely a reference to time. So I sometimes when I'm just out in nature, um, I get a di- this feeling because like I'm so quick, um, my lifespan so quick, but I just see nature as like not eternal, but like ages and ages. And I just kind of feel connected to nature. And it makes me feel like I'm just brought into this stream of ages, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if like the eternal life, if maybe as far as it being a state of being like we are in Christ, in God, we're connected. And so we're kind of co- we're connected to this eternal essence and in that sense, we enter into like some kind of a thing that's just no longer temporal. And um, so it's not just merely, well, this life gets over and you just continue on. But it's more like even now we are joined with something that's not temporal. Um, our bodies are still temporal, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but us, we're in with the eternal. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Um, uh, T.S. Eliot mentions the point of contact between time and the timeless or something like that. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think that's um, a, a taste of maybe of God's eternity instead of sort of the rush from one thing to the next. Um, people say living in the moment, but, you know, mm-hmm. experiencing, um, yeah, a sense of the whole world and your place as a part of it without having to move on to the next thing immediately. And um, I would hope that'd be part of the peace and the lack of anxiety that, that Christ gives us um, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a song by a, a Christian band that, that mentioned something like that eternal life starts now. Hmm. It's not sort of, oh, we're just waiting and mm-hmm. there's nothing to do here and now. Um, I, fi- I find that helpful. Um, but I also, I also don't... I don't fear like heaven being endless <laughs> either. I, I like the end of, again, the last battle, the idea that Aslan is leading them ever deeper and further. So instead of you sort of reach that static end state and just boom, just stare at God and there's nothing else, mm-hmm. more a sense that um, the, there will never be there won't there won't be that that boring endpoint where you know you've got all the pleasure you need and then you're like oh well now I'm bored what am I going to do which mm-hmm. kind of happens in this world mm-hmm. um, but a sense that there's always more to know of God and um, you know some philosophers and theologians have tried to do without the idea of eternal life like it's just feeling eternity now. And 
feel like that's giving up on the Christian hope. If there's, if there's not resurrection, then um, one of my favorite philosophers took this view. He was sort of headed towards Christianity, but never quite made it. His name was Roger Scruton. And he, he took the view that eternity was sort of a, a feeling we could experience now, but that after death there was nothing. And I just have to say, I hope he's wrong, because <laughs> I, hope, I hope he was close enough to, to uh, sort of make it into the kingdom of God and mm-hmm. experience resurrection. So, um, yeah, like we have, of course, this sense of wanting, it's not in, and I guess like a naturalist could just explain that with like, well, we have the senses to survive, you know, and that's like a part of evolution and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or I guess the Christian would explain it as like, well, this is built in and, um, yeah, we're met for it or something along those lines. Yeah. I, I've thought about this a, a fair bit. I mean, bringing in another pop song, um, the, the Foo Fighters has <laughs> some song where, uh, Dave Grohl, the lead singer is, uh, is, is screaming like, I never want to die. I never want to die. <laughs> and um, something like visceral and rock and roll about it. Hmm. But I feel like there's like a, a spiritual truth there that um, whereas there's, there's, you could have a sense, I'm just going to resign myself to this life is all there is. Um, there's a sense that that's, that would just be tragic. The story of human life would be, we were sometimes happy, oftentimes miserable for a brief time, and then it just ended. And um, I read a book called The Tragic Sense of Life, uh, sort of <laughs> semi-Catholic existentialist writer. And it, w- it was incredible because the whole book, he was basically arguing for eternal life from almost a secular angle. I think he'd been more of a philosopher and then was headed towards becoming a Catholic. And he just emphasized the idea that if this life is all there is, then our story is basically a tragic one. It's, it's like that of the Greek tragedies or, um, or, you know, Shakespearean tragedies of, we, we did our best, but through no fault of our own, it ended in just death. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the other side as you're describing that. Yeah. Because, um, like, what if, you know, that's how each individually experiences the end, but then the bigger natural world, the universe, continues to evolve and change, and we're just like one little piece of it, but that's the thing that just continues um but i think Mm -hmm. according to um probably science you know that's going to end too (laughs) like you know as far as our sphere of it in a long time but yeah yeah as far as consciousness and um Mm -hmm. unless there's life other places and so but anyway um yeah Uh, yeah the, the other piece of it though is um it's more this moral aspect like a lot of um, 
Socrates' arguments about morality and justice, as he calls it, um, have to do with the idea of living an upright, righteous life is inherently better and happier life than the life of someone who lives wickedly. Examples of people who live wickedly are often to the extreme. He'll take like a tyrant. He's got absolute power, has a ton of money, and can do what he wants with women and and so on and so forth. Just like can pursue every pleasure that he wants without suffering any consequences in this life. Um, and it's he really puts the burden proof of, of proof on himself because the idea that just living an upright life, even if you're in a mud hut, is just happier and more enjoyable than that, is is a hard sell to the to the average person. But um, he does try to make this argument. He he tries to argue that anyone who lives that life of that tyrant, their own inner life has to be so turbulent and and corrupt they must they're like somebody who's suffering from tyranny within their soul their passions and desires are controlling them and pulling them every which way um and would that they could be free because then they could just uh go out to a mud hut and be happy (laughs) but if you know but if they're just being supplied constantly and their flesh is just being you know uh given whatever um i mean it seems like that would be kind of like not chaotic because it's like chaotic would be like chaotic would be if it didn't satisfy <laughs> if it don't but uh if you're yeah. just if that's all you want and you're just getting it you're getting it and getting and getting it, it seems like that seems kind of orderly in a fleshly sense <laughs> in, a, in a fleshly way well so the one thing to say is the odds of that happening are low. Right. <laughs> the, the history of, of tyrants is it comes back to bite them. And then <laughs> Usually because another tyrant wants to take over and kill them. And That's right, yeah. But, but that, he would say, is emblematic of... I mean, there's something unstable about you know, ruling a country that way, but, but also of... He, he would say there's something inherently... Um, chaotic. The... the the person who every moment uh, feels another desire, um, and maybe they have the means to go satisfy that immediately. Still, what if they wanted to just sit at the beach peacefully? They're never going to get to do it because they're they're stuck, you know, pulling another slot machine or watching another show or you know popping another pill or or whatever it is that that. Um, they're they're a slave to it. It's almost like there is some, and this is <clears throat> like the current mindfulness type of stuff. Like there's something um, pleasant about just being, um, like on uh, on the beach, like you were saying. Yeah, or in a park like this, <laughs> right? And not having to do or accomplish or feed or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess he's saying they would be missing that. They'd be missing that, and um, truly, they're they're not in control. I think that's that's the key. I mean, for example, a lot of the these Greek philosophers, they sort of said it would be great if we didn't have sex drives. 
because then we wouldn't be, you know, forced to spend our days pursuing, uh, for them, it was, it was usually, uh, good looking younger men <laughs> mm. and, and, um, or, or beautiful women or, or whatever it is. Uh, well, we, we could, we could sit around and just talk philosophy if we weren't beset by all these desires. So, so there was a sense, um, the, the one who, this was in a dialogue about wealth Socrates is talking about the one if you saw somebody and they had a thousand things you saw somebody else and they had one thing Socrates would say I, I pity this this man who has so many needs he, he lacks in a thousand ways that he has to fill in these different ways like he couldn't be happy if he didn't have these thousand things there's this other man he he's happy with one he has very few needs or he doesn't lack something so and there is something appealing to that because yeah. it's all going to be taken away and maybe gradually bit by bit you know mm-hmm. as we get old and so forth yeah i mean it it, it opens you up to risk of just mm-hmm. um the, the more things you need to be happy the less likely it is on the odds overall <laughs> but 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 also again just the idea that you're controlled by something from the outside of you that you, you need to have this. You can't just sort of satisfy it within yourself um, or with God if we take a Christian spin on it. Um, mm-hmm. So, but, but that was t- kind of headed back to the point of eternal life. Like, so the philosophers there are, are really trying to argue, we can, we can say that you ought to be moral even if it's very costly, even if this is the only life. But the gods would not be just if they didn't then reward us in, that, in the next life. Um, I mean, t- to some extent, that just sounds like a Christian idea, but it's, it's in Socrates. It's in, it's in Immanuel Kant, um, the more modern philosopher. Um, the the idea that you know because you do see some people with that tyrannical life say get away with it there's some people who just they satisfy every pleasure they don't care about other people and they get away with it and there's some people who live a perfectly righteous life and they're killed or made to suffer in innumerable ways and you know, you, you could try to say, oh, but they had this peace in the moment. They felt the eternity in the now. But the world would be a sad and an unjust place if that were the end of the story, mm-hmm. I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. So, when you were getting into philosophy, like, um, you were looking for something. Like, have you found that? Um, what has hmm. philosophy provided for you has it provided for you what you were looking for and so forth? Yeah. Um, I, th- I think I'm on, on the way. <laughs> it's provided some of it. And I feel like, especially on that more practical end, I think it, it provides something that I have to keep doing and keep kind of trying. And uh, I feel like um, some of what it means to be a Christian in the world 
a lot of that has been um, has been satisfied. I feel like I, I have a sort of perspective that I feel like it is accurate to the way the world is, especially the idea that um, there there is so much in common between someone who's a Christian and someone who is not. We live in the same world. We're created by the same God. Um, we feel the pangs of conscience at the same things, you know, apart from <laughs> certain hardened consciences or whatever. We, we have a sense of the, the, the moral law of God. Um, it comes out in different ways, but the idea that there's something common there and that that's kind of where we start. You don't have to just jump straight to get saved. You know, um, Jesus satisfies longings that are already there in everybody. And a lot of what the Bible says is not totally unique to the Bible. It's, it's like the book of Ecclesiastes, I mean, is, it's, it sums up everything that Greek philosophy, which actually came after it, I think, is trying to get at, but even better. Um, so, so there's, there's so much that, um, there's, there's so much that a Christian in talking to someone who's not a Christian can, can appeal to and, and have in common. And those are, those are pointers towards something more ultimate. You don't have to just jump straight to sort of the end of the story as it were, though that's sort of the, the end goal. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's something I perspective I've really taken up and, and learned. Um, but then I feel like this idea of philosophy, especially is what I just said of sort of limiting the needs and limiting what you desire. Um, Marcus Aurelius famous as a stoic, like the idea of being, this used to be part of the vision of a philosopher. A philosopher was an ethical ideal. It wasn't just somebody in an ivory tower thinking about those sort of language games. It was, um, somebody who had the character that they didn't need outside things, they could weather the storm. Um, and I feel like that's something that I am really starting to try to learn, but it's not something you can, you know, you, you can learn what Kant or Wittgenstein or Socrates says in a few years of graduate school, but how to weather the storms of life without um, being subject to fear and anger and, and so on. That's, and that, that's that, kind there's of no the, shortcut there. And that's kind of what the Stoic philosophers were after, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. What you have to practice, I mean, it's, it's philosophy. I mean, I can say I have a, a philosophical view like dualism or something. There's a soul and there's a body. <laughs> I don't have to do anything for that to be my view. <laughs> but if I, if I say, I think that... Um, nothing in this life ought to make me sad in principle mm -hmm. or angry in principle. Well, as soon as somebody, you know, cuts you off or, you know, somebody insults you, your view changes. <laughs> Wait a second. This thing is so bad. I must, you know, yell back at them or, or, or something um, to, to maintain the view that no suffering in this life is is worth becoming angry over 
requires discipline. It's not something you just, I believe that. No, you have to, have to learn to live it out. Mm-hmm. And I have a, a long way to go there. You know, how would you, and you, you kind of touched on it here and there as you were talking, but how would you put it in a nutshell as far as your soul's desire? Like, what do you really desire? For me or for, like, what I think is kind of the, the ultimate for everybody here? Uh, you, from your own experience, I think. Um, I mean, I think, you know, thinking of, like, C.S. Lewis, like, but speaking for myself, I mean, a sort of um, joy... that's related back to how you were talking about kind of being in nature, but kind of feeling like you're in your proper place. Like I think of maybe something I felt when I kind of had a a sense of conversion to Christianity, a sense of I'm right with God now. Like, like not necessarily the joy of like, Oh, I'm having a great time on the beach. Um, you know, I personally don't enjoy a lot of the standard just ways of sitting around and enjoying yourself. Mm-hmm. Philosophy, I often feel closer to that, partly because I'm thinking about higher things. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's <laughs> how do you get a stapler through hundred mm-hmm. pieces of paper? But ideally, it's it's your mind occupied with higher thoughts and how to honor and serve God. Ultimately. I guess the point being that, you know, everybody's pursuing happiness and, and joy in some way, but even something as simple as that nagging conscience sense of, um, yeah, I'm having a good time right now, but what have I done to get here? And, uh, You know, that's where that's where I think Christianity really comes in. There's no sense of being really at one and at peace without knowing the one who made the world and who made you and um You know, I think that takes something to prove. There are definitely I mean, for example, just how happy you are, like that's a lot of that is personality. Like I'm kind of an Eeyore, kind of a dour personality overall. So I know there's plenty of people maybe who aren't Christians who they're having a happier time <laughs> in life, say, but, um, that sense of joy. Um, I mean, ideally, again, that should be something that doesn't depend on circumstances. Not that you feel elated every moment, but just of, and you're probably coming back to it. You know, you're like, well, I just had a really unhappy day, but you know what? I know God and things are right in the world. Ultimately, I should pick myself back up and begin again. I feel like that's, you know, partly that's what I should say as a Christian, but I think that's I think that's what the actual answer is as well. Yeah. 
So for me, um, I know there's this longing, and I can't really uh, define it like super well, but it's like clear. I'm searching, like when I just because I just journal, and um, it's something close to like some kind of a, a state of being. So I, I guess it could be the answer could be God. I'm searching for God. Um, though, like you said, you know, I think there is a sense in which we can say we know God and that we've experienced him. Um, but um, still, there is that, like, I'm still searching, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to, to get to something of that has to do with, like, satisfaction. And... Um, mm-hmm. The um, and and you know we were talking about eternal life, yeah. Like, and the highest conceivable um, state of that satisfaction would be in an eternal state, I think. And I've wondered before if it makes like logical and rational sense to pursue and believe in the best thing that's conceivable. Because, like, if there's something, um, and if you don't even, if that's proof just in and of itself, um, because mm-hmm. if there's something better than that, then um, wouldn't that be, like, above the ultimate reality, which is what we're talking about as far as God? Um, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know if that's a rational argument. It's just, more to me, more like an intuitive type of sense, I think. Absolutely. Um yeah, I mean, if, if you knew there was something higher, how could you be satisfied? Or if you didn't know there was something higher, wouldn't you think that the satisfaction was not quite right? Like, well, there's something higher. <laughs> hmm. yeah. you, you'd wish you knew that higher thing. I mean, I think, I think, I think this is right. I mean, the... the highest good i mean um this is where like i don't see how this world can can be the highest good it can be and i, I do ultimately think like the perspective on this life to take is um i mean it's not in our control but to shoot for a a, a nice enjoyable average life <laughs> mm-hmm. um you know some people say being Christians are martyred for that or others not even Christians it, it ends in tragedy um, but if that were it I mean a lot would be lacking I mean you know, somebody else had a more enjoyable life why is it fair that you didn't get that and, and forget why is it fair but wouldn't you wish that you'd been able to enjoy more I mean I think this is it's not exactly a a rational argument though there's philosophical versions of it I think you're right you said it's intuitive argument it's sort of I mean philosophers often divide up human beings into like reason and the desires or passions and this is more an argument from the passions like we, we desire the greatest good whatever that is um, 
but could it really be that that's just an empty desire? I mean, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. I mean, the author of that book, The Tragic Sense of Life, he, he, he argues for this. He's like, people want to be philosophers. They want to just be rational. But there's this whole part of, of a human being that's, that's longing for something. Mm-hmm. And isn't that proof in itself, not in the sort of, you know, there's a syllogism and the logic works out, but, but sort of, you could say, how did that desire get there? Why is, why is that even there unless there's something in the world mm-hmm. that, that answers to it? I wonder if it could be put into a logical form. Because, um, mm-hmm. like, let's say, um, you know, you got a really uh, sturdy ladder that leads you up to a pot of soup. But then you got this really rickety, shaky ladder that may not hold you, but it leads up to, like, the desire of your soul. You know, a pot of gold or whatever, the, uh-huh. the desire of your soul. And is it rational, I mean, um, to risk that that uh, shaky ladder? I mean, um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean... I feel like people would try to answer it with game theory or something like, well, what are the odds? And, yeah. but yeah, that sense of, um, just sort of settling, um, which, you know, arguably this is what most people are doing. Like, um, you know, I'll try to be a Super Bowl winning NFL quarterback, or I'll, I'll try to be a really wealthy businessman, or I'll try to give my kids the perfect life and so on people are shooting for something like and this is like the highest thing for them mm-hmm. um right even though they know like this could not turn out and plenty of people have done this before and not been happy anyway yeah um in movies it's you always want the guy to Go for it. You don't want him to settle. You know yeah, that would be yeah. a really boring story. Uh-huh. <laughs> you want him to absolutely. If there's a sliver of the chance of a chance, you just man, you just want him to go for it. So yeah, it's it's and, more like the the superhero mentality, or or just uh, yeah, beating the odds yeah. compared to it. No, no one would make a movie that's just about the normal suburban dad just being normal and suburban and cutting yeah. his grass perfectly, and so. I think there's reasons to have confidence and to think, you know, the odds, rationality conforms to, like, the Christian worldview. But it seems like this might be an argument beside that. Like, well, what if it didn't? Maybe if there is just a sliver of the... It's a possibility, isn't it? Perhaps it's worth going for. (laughs) I kind of want want to ask that of atheists sometimes. Like, well, you don't believe it, but isn't it good? Don't you wish it were true? (laughs) I don't know how they would respond. But yeah. that'd be interesting. Yeah, I mean, Pascal's wager, right? It's, it's you know, it would, Pascal was one of the philosophers who, who focused on, he said, the reasons of the heart, the reasons of the heart that reason doesn't know. And this is the sort of thing he was talking about. It was just like, I can't really argue you into this, though he did have a big book, his, his thoughts that kind of gave you his thoughts on why Christianity was the way, but... Um, ultimately, isn't this a better bet? If it turns out right, 
then there's a great reward. If it turns out wrong, it's nothingness and there's no Tragedy, real cost. Though, it is tragic, <laughs> yeah. as I've argued. Yeah. But um, whereas the flip side, the downsides are, are much more negative. Mm-hmm. And um, could be missing out. You could be missing out at the very least. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a really just puts life in a really a crux, or I don't know if that's the right word. Like, there's a lot riding on this, you know, like on, yeah. um, there's like eternal weighty things going on. And I don't know, it just gives you that sense of it. Yeah. Sometimes, but, you know, I just had um, a thought about one of the philosophers, well, this is actually a, a theologian who argued that eternity is just something we experience in this life and there is no afterlife. Karl Barth argued this. Oh, okay. Hmm. And um, what's interesting is um, uh, a man who was preparing to become an Anglican bishop or a priest showed this to the philosopher Wittgenstein, Ludwig Wittgenstein, back in the early 1900s. Wittgenstein was not a believer, but he had this great like spiritual sense of the weight of the moral law and and of the possibility of a god and he read this theologian so you know Karl Barth was a Christian like he believed in Jesus' resurrection but for some reason he didn't believe in our resurrection hmm. and Wittgenstein read this and he what, what his thought was or or well, the other piece of, of Karl Barth is that everyone will be saved, wh- whatever salvation means, whether it's an afterlife or not. Um, and Wittgenstein looked at this and he said, well, that would take away the whole moral seriousness of life. If, if everybody just got forgiven and we just kind of went on and there were, there were no consequences and it's just interesting coming from someone who couldn't embrace Christianity. He, he was like, if you guys give up on there's, there's real consequences to how we live this life in a moral sense and a religious sense, then what's the point? Because mm-hmm. he almost sympathized less with, you know, there is a God out there who's supernatural and more with this life is of utmost ethical importance and we can't ignore that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important to hold on to. And um, that's part of what being a Christian, but also being a philosopher, should, should ultimately be, is trying to live consciously and, and ethically before other people and before God. Morality does seem like <clears throat> just so real, like even though we don't, examine it with our senses it -hmm. seems just as real as this table or anything else and it's obvious in the world um when you Mm -hmm. think about it everybody wants to be right like you know they want to justify themselves and so forth and it just kind of goes to show it seems to me that there's this moral sense that everyone carries with them there's this very real thing of right and wrong Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i mean i was just having the thought of even just um, the little words we say to one another and just how 
um, the way you speak to someone can make their day or tear them down. Hmm. I mean, a sense of like the the words we say, the, the smallest actions we do, the facial expressions we present towards others, all of that can make an eternal difference. Um, and yeah, that can't be accounted for in purely materialistic terms. Um, you know, right. C.S. Lewis put it like, there's natural laws governing things. You know, if you drop something, it falls. Oops. <laughs> um, but we have a sense of this, this moral law of, you know, you shouldn't insult someone or, or something as simple as that. And, but people do. <laughs> so this is a law in a different sense. This is not what people do, but what people should do. <laughs> so that means the world isn't just a place where things happen and people do things. It's also a place where there are things that people should do. Right. Is that like floating free of, of reality or how, how does this, but it seems very real. Right. Yeah. Do, you know, so Christian apologetics is one of the things that led you into philosophy. Mm-hmm. Has that, has philosophy been helpful, but even more so, is it helpful in like evangelism or bringing other people into the Christian faith? Is it practical for that? I think it is. Um, so, now, I'd say I, I, um, I felt a lot of guilt earlier in life um, from the sense that I have a duty to evangelize. And I did not have the social skills even to carry on many ordinary conversations with, you know, my fellow students at school, much less to jump to, you've got to get saved. Here's Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I spent a lot of, a lot of years just feeling a sense of guilt about that. Um, Part of what, philosophy has done for me, and I've hinted at this, is, is have a sense of what like Francis Schaeffer called pre-evangelism. There's, there's something before that. Now, it can be as simple as like have social skills and <laughs> learn how to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody's a lot more able to hear what you're saying if, if you're saying it. <laughs> and if, mm-hmm. you know, but but also of <clears throat> you know one question is like why would somebody want to be a Christian? Like one of the major problems Christianity offers to solve is is guilt. A lot of people don't feel or are you know, suppressing any feeling of guilt, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of our culture is aimed at ridding you of any guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, if you wanted to trace this to some intellectual forefather, it'd probably be someone like Freud, mm-hmm. um, of just, you know, the guilt is just your super ego, your your parents' organized religion forced this on you. Just to become psychologically healthy is just to get rid of that that sense of guilt, mm-hmm. which, you know, there's a lot of false guilt that people do have to overcome from any any upbringing, 
mm-hmm. but you people need to be persuaded of guilt. So they need to be, be persuaded, for example, of, of the reality of something like morality, that there really are standards that are of our behavior that are bearing down upon us and holding us. Um, how? <laughs> well, it's hard, hard to understand, but, but you have to have a sense that the way I'm living is, is not right. And I mean, you know, there are, there are like tactics. I remember seeing like, it was like Ray Comfort. He'd have a tactic of like talking you through the 10 commandments and then he's going to present you with the gospel because you fell short on a few, but just a feeling of like, that might take, that might take a little bit of extra time too, to have a sense like there really is, sometimes that takes like a catastrophe in somebody's life to say, the way I was living did not work. And it also seems like it was wrong. <laughs> and then they have a sense of something is, there seems to be this, this sort of moral standard in the world. I can't see it, but I feel it. Wait, Christianity solves guilt? I could actually use some of that. <laughs> um, so I feel, I feel like philosophies. That, that would be one example of a way of like, there's something prior to just Christianity um, offering the solution. Getting people to see the problem is its own difficulty. Mm-hmm. And I feel like even just say the conflict between a naturalistic worldview, or the world is just made of matter and that's it, versus, you know, we have a soul and there's a moral realm and God exists. I mean, that conflict has this sort of moral significance. I mean, if you can really think like the world is just meaningless matter in motion, you have an official story to say like, all this morality stuff, I don't need to worry about this. So, um, so philosophy can, 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 can help with that. I mean, I have a lot of ways I think that naturalistic view just falls short. Um, and I think it's, those are good materials to have. I, um, I think often apologetics or evangelism are a bit more like really quick. Like we're just gonna, we're strangers. Mm-hmm. Here's the solution to a problem you didn't know you had. As opposed to, people talk about lifestyle evangelism. As long as like people are actually like, in your life and there really is that sort of continuity I do think there's something important of that of like how do you live your life someone needs to you need to be there when someone's life sort of falls apart and that might be in like five years mm-hmm. so if everything is just this short term it might not be the moment where somebody is ready to to hear about your faith mm-hmm. um, so at the same time, you know, th- there's people who do that very well and have a lot of love for people in doing that. Um, I do think philosophy has given me a lot of things to, sh- to say that, that help sort of prepare somebody for the gospel, um, whether we get all the way there in a given conversation or not. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. I guess, um, you know, I, let me ask you just about philosophers I heard from 
heard of and maybe some different things and just kind of to touch on some things and just see what thoughts you might have. Yeah. And then maybe we can kind of turn and just kind of talk a little bit about how um, this can maybe get more practical and stuff yeah. in our lives. But yeah. like um, not too long ago, I came across Alvin Plantinka and uh, I, I, so I haven't really read him, but just mm-hmm. read about him and kind of got summaries of some of the things he has to say. And some of it is really encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, he speaks about warranted belief. Can you give a little summary of just what does it mean? Does that mean like you have a right to be, a legitimate right to believe certain things? And if so, like what makes it right to believe something? Yeah. Um, yeah. Elvin Plantinga was uh, one of the first major kind of Christian philosophers that I dug into and really benefited from and kind of directed me. Um, so just important historical background is just that the philosophy discipline was very unfriendly to Christians or folks of any religious belief um, back, say, in, in like the 1950s. Um, ironically, given the stereotype of like American culture at the time, philosophy mm-hmm. departments were more hostile to religion back then. Um, whereas he kind of went through the, the whole training and kind of really opened up the door for Christians to go into academic philosophy. Um, and the argument he's making there about whether Christian belief is warranted, he's partly trying to defend like why he should be a full member of the Philosophical Academy, but also answering the question that, that everybody has of what grounds do I have to, to really believe right. this stuff? Is, mm-hmm. Does God really exist? Did, did a man really rise from the dead? And, and so on. And he, importantly, is trying to say that there can be um, justified or warranted Christian belief. You have a right to believe it, you know, good reason to believe it even without some of the sort of apologetics of, I have a clear argument. Um, his, his specific argument is if, if Christianity is true, then God's Holy Spirit works within our minds as part of revealing these things to us. Um, and, and, you know, the the average, say, Christian grandmother might not fare well in a debate with Richard Dawkins, mm-hmm. but their Christian belief is 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 warranted if Christianity is true. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think there were a lot of philosophers trying to say, like, whether Christianity is true or not, you've got no grounds for believing it. The sort of a distinction between is it true, and are you sort of crazy or irrational to believe it? Um, and so, warrant, um, Alvin Plantinga wanted to be able to, to say, pe- people are warranted or justified in, in having these beliefs, even if they can't give you the knockdown argument. Some, te- some people think that's a cop-out. But, you know, I think there's an important, I think especially for a philosopher to say, I'm not going to give you you know, a 10 bullet point argument for Christianity. I'm just going to say, if Christianity is true, then God's got a way to reveal it to us. 
um, the yeah. Bible, the Holy Spirit, so on. And and that's meaningful to me uh, because if it's just, is it true? I mean, you could go back and forth, and like there's, you know, there's always going to be a lack of hundred percent certainty. Right, it's probable. But like if if I know it's the right thing to believe, then that's just like okay. Well, I just go forward, and it's encouraging to me. But yeah. um, I could see like a response being, um, well, you know, I don't feel I don't have that sense that there's a God. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, absolutely. And then sometimes I just ask myself, do I have the sense? Like, mm-hmm. um, I I feel like I've had an experience with God, or, um, and I, so, but like. Do I have the sense that I carry around with me? And I don't, I don't know. What is that? You know, mm-hmm. so there's those questions about it. Yeah. And I don't think, um, you know, Plantinga has other actual arguments for God's existence. He yeah. even has an article. I think it was like 21 or so dozen, no, like two dozen or so theistic arguments, arguments for God's existence. And yeah. uh, um, in addition to, he, he's got a very worked out version of what's called the ontological argument. So he's he's willing to give you an argument that God exists. Yeah. But he also wants to say I don't I don't need to give you a detailed argument for me not to be like a crazy person for believing. Right. Cuz it's rational to believe there's uh that if there is a God, he'd give us a sense of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So um I hear David Hume um mm. you know like a famous name don't know much about him, but like, what's the main thing that he's about? Is there a main thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think people are often searching for a bad guy in the history of philosophy. Like, where did it all go wrong? Mm -hmm. I am surprised more people don't just admit that it's Hume. (laughs) (laughs) You know, people go back to Hobbes, but um, certainly if you're concerned about, say, a materialistic worldview versus... um, one where there's more to the world than just the material and mm-hmm. um, there's design and purpose in nature. Hume um, was... Oh, something on me. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> he, he was trying to, to argue for as atheistic a worldview as he could do prior to basically Charles Darwin. Hmm. Um, so this, this comes out in like a couple of ways. Like he spelled out various arguments against the existence of God. He's sort of putting the traditional arguments for God's existence to the test. Um, Though even there, he doesn't come right out and say it. He, he writes in, in a dialogue form. So he's got these four different characters. And you can sort of guess which one is, is Hume's own view. But even there, he admits, I, I can't really explain like where living beings came from and where the world came from. Many philosophers think that Darwin supplied that answer. And now you can be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. But Hume was sort of pointing in that direction. He also... An important piece of this was the idea that the human mind um, 
projects all values onto nature. None of it's really there. There's a sharp divide between the realm of fact that science can study and the realm of value that's a subjective proje projection. Human beings are just, you know, say, you know, the, the water is blue. <laughs> not, not quite accurate, but, you know, <laughs> that, actually, that's not even a good example. The grass um, is short. <laughs> Hmm. That's Just a, stuff like that. That's a scientific fact. Mm -hmm. um, well, maybe I'd have to measure the length. To an ant, it's not short, so there's even the subjectivity mm -hmm. in there. The grass is of such and such a length. There, there's a fact. Okay. But the grass looks mighty fine. Hmm. I see. That that's subjective not projection. Object subjective, okay. And, but this, this goes on and on, like... Um, the action you took broke that person's arm. The action you took was cruel. Hmm. Those, um, the first one is in the realm of fact. Um, it can be, you don't have to be a scientist to know it, but you could give a sort of scientific account of that, and you probably need to in order to fix the arm and uh, put it back together. But, you know, what you did was cruel. How do you... D does cruelty exist apart from the sort of human idea of cruelty? Is it, But this has developed into a widespread... I mean, this is taught in public schools these days, that there's fact and then there's just opinion. There's nothing in between. So you, you're you know, shown a headline and you have to distinguish what's fact and what's opinion. This is what, you know, students come into undergraduate institutions. They just have this view. And a lot and many philosophy professors are like we've got to break you up this this view that if it's not science it's subjective. Many other philosophers want to put forward this view. So Hume is a is a, is major for for creating that sort of divide, which I think really sticks with us. There's the sense of I mean, you see this just in our public discourse. If you can't give a scientific study for it, this is just your opinion. There's, there's no sense of shared morality. Or if there is, there's a sense that it's just kind of based on consensus. It's just, it's not really there. It's not really, there's, there's no moral truth. So, yeah. <laughs> So the people we've been talking about are all Western philosophers. Mm -hmm. Is there anything of Eastern philosophy that's um, significant and that's important to be aware of and so forth? Yeah, I mean, I'm less, much less knowledgeable about it. I think there's part of this, I was saying the ancient Greeks were more focused on the philosophy of, of life and how to live. I think that's a major thing you see from the Eastern philosophers. I mean... Taoism, for example, has a lot in common with Stoicism. Mm -hmm. Same with Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they, uh, over there, I mean, religion and philosophy are hard to disentangle even. You know, mm -hmm. Buddhism is, is largely a philosophy, though it has some more religious tenets as well. Um, so, I think, and Confucianism is, is very much like 
an outlook on on how to live. There's no commitment to God or there hmm. are the ancestors going on, but um, so I think you can learn from that the priority of this more philosophy of life, this more practical dimension of philosophy. Um, you know, whole civilizations they can do without you know, what, what philosophers call metaphysics and a detailed working out of how exactly is the world made up. Usually a sort of myth has been enough for people of like, well, you know, this God had a fight with that God and out popped the world. Okay, but what's our philosophy of how should we live? So I think that'd probably be one thing, but that's actually one of my motivations to go study more Eastern philosophy is the sense that you want to sort of redirect over to the more practical side of philosophy, a lot of that's already been articulated in those Eastern traditions. Philosophy as wisdom. Right. Like, some of what we started out the conversation with was more philosophy as inane curiosity. <laughs> right. As opposed to, can you take a quotation of a philosopher and be like, it's really wise. I have to think about that. How am I going to put that into practice? Mm-hmm. And I think that's much more common and frequent with an Eastern philosopher. Right. Okay. So as far as going forward um, and, you know, like growing as a person, um, getting closer to whatever we are wanting and experience, you know, to experience and stuff, um, what are your thoughts about that? Do you have any rituals or ret- routines that help? Or, or what does cause you to grow? And um, just anything along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I'm uh, lacking in some of those. Um, I'm actually speaking to a friend this uh, later this week who has um, moved into the Eastern Orthodox Church partly to embody all these the rituals and um, the the disciplines um, for me it's it's been different at, at different points like just a you know a ritual of kind of sc- reading scripture and, and prayer um, but you know we, we we started out mentioning this uh, workout group that I'm a part of mm-hmm and that has been a major source of kind of ritual for hmm. me. I'm not sure people see it that way, but um, again, it's called Fitness, Fellowship, and Faith, F3. And the faith is understood in this broader sense, not to be exclusively um, Christianity or any other faith, but seeking something higher than yourself and people within that. Many are Christians, others are other beliefs. But there's also a religious aspect of just ritual. So, like, the way this works is, you probably heard some of the details of this, but your workout starts at 5.30 in the morning, which a lot of people just stop there, and it's like, I'm done, I'm done hearing about that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes earlier, we'll go on a, a, a ruck beforehand with weighted backpack, walk around for 30 minutes. So sometimes i got to wake up at 4.45 to get there at 5. Mm-hmm. Or... Today was even earlier, so I won't even talk about that. But, but in this case, it's 
it's almost like a right of, of physical exertion. You, you carry your cement block. That's your one weight because the whole thing is free. Um, and so you're starting off the day with something very difficult and probably the most physically challenging thing you'll do that day. Mm-hmm. And you had to wake up early. You had to lose some sleep. Um, I led the workout this morning and I, I closed with the verse of let, let a man take up his cross and deny himself daily. And I, I just think, I think it's also behooves me to, you know, meditate on verses like that every day, but also putting it into practice of, um, doing something that's, that's just difficult and not just living a comfortable life, but purposefully undertaking something. Of course, suffering is different when you choose it. You know, if somebody forces you to, say, bear crawl 100 feet, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> okay, I crawl on all fours, um, you'd probably be pretty upset. But if somebody sort of gets you to come out willingly and tells you to do it, there's something different about And then you can yeah. view life that way. You can say, I'm going to, you know, my kids might wake me up four times tonight. I might not get a good night of sleep. But what if I take that as sort of something voluntary, like I'm going to be a good father this over the course of tonight, um, which which is is uh, a struggle. But um, then that's something voluntarily undertaken. I'm gonna. This is very much like the Stoics. Like I can't control how much my kids wake up in the middle of the night, but I can control how I respond to it and how I handle them and speak to them and help them back to sleep and, and so on and how I feel and act. So, and, and also that, that group, um, part of it is, is fellowship and just seeing friends every day. First thing in the morning. I just, people often don't get that in the first sales pitch for this group. It's like, you will see your friends every day. Well, every day that you go Mm -hmm. three, three or you know, a few days a week uh, at least. Um, and I feel like that's an important ritual for me. I mentioned being kind of an Eeyore, a bit of a more dour personality, but just um, I feel myself sort of just open up when I, when I have to be around people and talk mm-hmm. to them. Um, that helps me when I then you know, return back home and with my kids and my wife and I don't want to just be a grump. <laughs> So it's, it's, it's sometimes a temptation, but you know, I've, I've had other people speak to me and pour into me and hopefully I'm encouraged and I'm ready to spread some of that positivity. So that, that's been a, an important source of kind of ritual and, uh, and discipline for me. And, and also partly, um, goes back to thinking about, how does my Christian faith relate to um, other people who, who might not be Christian? Like this group, you know, at least out in St. Charles, Missouri, you know, a solid half of us are, are Christians probably, but a good number aren't. And, but we're doing something all together. We're all seeking to improve ourselves. There's a lot of crossover with kind of the self-help, self-improvement sort of world. And... I feel like that sense that, man, I can really grow not just from other Christians, but just from 
somebody who's willing to make sacrifices and get up in the morning and so um you know it's not a, a ritual that's sanctioned by you know a particular denomination or something it's not like the eastern orthodox way or anything but right. for me that is a is a ritual and it really helps me you're not eastern orthodox are you no I, okay. I go to a presbyterian church okay i was just curious been around the the protestant block pretty much yeah they're a curious group. I don't know much about them, but mm-hmm. um, well, I guess we'll, you know, I guess we could wrap up. Um, is there any just anything else that you'd like to bring up before we just kind of wrap up this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I'd want to push just a little bit more on like the practical side of philosophy like i do feel like we've we've touched on it with like morality and the seriousness of life and but um it's it's something again i started out with the kind of goofy examples in in philosophy and, and there's whole people who get titled philosopher like professor of philosophy who primarily just do that all day. And I feel like it gives people the wrong impression about philosophy because the original vision of, of philosophy was an ethical ideal. It was usually combined with living in poverty. And, you know, if you wanted to discuss philosophy all day, you would have to be in poverty because you weren't going to be making much money. Mm-hmm. And um, so that brought with it a sort of ethical side of, well, you've got to not need as much and I've got to live a more difficult life and um, but there's also always been this view in, in in that realm of philosophy of there's sort of the philosophers and then there's the masses of humanity mm-hmm. and most people just live according to their local custom and they don't question it and whereas the philosopher <clears throat> is somebody whose way, way of going about things is more considered. They thought about it. Um, so, and, and there's ways that that can go wrong. You know, there's ways that you might just cause yourself more pain by thinking so hard. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but generally, the idea that um, the, there are philosophical questions that, that are uh, much... They're much closer to life. Like, what is, what is a life worth living? It's a, it's a philosophical question. I mean, Aristotle has these beautiful arguments for why just seeking after wealth or um, pleasure or honor are what most people are doing and are ultimately empty. But that, he says, something higher would be a life in accord with virtue. And that this would be enjoyable and a happy life. And so I, I feel like people can... The question is sort of where to find philosophy being articulated in this way. And, you know, there's some resources like The School of Life is this YouTube channel run by somebody who... He either dropped out or just uh, said no thanks to a Harvard PhD in philosophy and he instead founded this thing, the school of life Hmm. that would 
present philosophy to more a, a non-academic audience and be about the practical questions of life. And I feel like um, there's a, there's so much there of so so many of the problems we face in life are <laughs> we bring upon ourselves because <laughs> we're not thinking about why we're doing what we're doing and. I think that's something that that philosophy does or should offer to people. And I'd like to see that be more prominent in philosophy. So is the way for the common, everyday, modern person to interact with philosophy, um, how can that become a concrete thing? Is it watching YouTube? Is it discussion groups? Is it books? a mixture or something other than that or yeah I mean I think I think there's a lot on YouTube personally of of interviews and discussions Um, you know you've got to find the right corner of YouTube but um, I think it borders on the, the the self help sort of world mm-hmm. um, even the, the for example stoicism has become very popular like there's a channel the daily stoic hmm. and it's a bit more of like how to succeed in business well it's got more of a kind of business orientation a self help orientation but I think there's 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 a lot there I I do think there's there are philosophy books that are written for um, an audience that's not just academic philosophers I think those are the most mostly the only books that I would ever like to write because mm-hmm. otherwise kind of what's the point mm-hmm. but um, you kind of have to you have to search for those I mean this 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 group the school of life is embodying this more than anybody else I know and they have books they've got YouTube mm-hmm. uh, they they offer kind of philosophy counseling mm-hmm. if you which is another idea I'm intrigued by, the idea that philosophy can be sort of a therapy, help hmm. someone think through their, their difficulties. And so I think that's where to start. But I mean, ultimately, you also want to be talking to people. And so where to find people who want to talk about those things? I mean, that can, that can be hard if you don't already know these people. I mean... I found these people partly through educational institutions where, you know, people converge who want to talk about these things. Um, but you know, they're, they're out there. It's not always, we don't, we don't always already know each other. We've got to search each other out or mm-hmm. find a, a, a meetup group or, or something like that. And right. I just, I think that can do, do a lot for people having people with whom we don't just, talk about the superficial things. I mean, Aristotle contrasted, we have friendships of utility and friendships of pleasure, but we have very few friendships of virtue, where how to become more virtuous is the topic. Hmm. And I feel like that's about the same as the sort of philosophical friendships that I think people would really benefit to have. And I think that's also an example of Aristotle saying something really practical and mm-hmm. <laughs> helpful, doing the sort of philosophy that I, I appreciate. Is there um, anything that people should follow from you? Do you blog or do anything like that? I I don't. Okay. Right now, um, and I'm sort of waiting to see. I'm just focusing on um, 
my my studies and starting a dissertation and um my wife has uh wisely encouraged me to hold off on kind of creating any platform until the ideas are sort of formed and (laughs) but yeah well thanks joel i enjoyed it it was good to meet you and i really appreciate the conversation yeah thank you Mm -hmm.